Well, I don't know about you, but I'm excited about this series. Um, this, uh, this, well, we'll get to this. This movie is hilarious. But uh, welcome to, to Alive this morning. I want to especially welcome those of you who are in the Pleasant View area, those of you in the chapel, and those of you following along online. Uh, Pastor Tom sends his greetings from Virginia. Uh, just like we had a district conference yesterday, Virginia is having their own district conference, and they've actually asked Pastor Tom to come and speak and be with them for the next couple of days. And uh, Pastor Tom said that he would love to have our prayer support, so I thought we should start this morning by just praying for Pastor Tom. So can you guys pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this church, for what you're doing here, God, in our midst, in our lives. Uh, God, that you are making things new. We are so, so grateful for that. God, we thank you for Pastor Tom, for his leadership, for his heart, uh, for his love for us, but more importantly, God, his love for you. And we ask that as he goes into a group of people who are ministering on a regular basis, people who may be tired, people who may be uh, struggling, people who may be finding an ultimate victory, uh, just ask that you would equip Pastor Tom with everything he needs. God, give him energy, give him uh, the words to say, uh, allow him to do the work that you've called him to do there. God, help him to know that he is deeply missed and deeply loved here, and uh, yet that he's where he's supposed to be this morning. So we just ask you to be with him, allow your Holy Spirit to empower him. And uh, be with us this morning as we focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this movie has been uh, deeply impacting in my life, the trilogy actually, and we're about to pay uh, our respects this series to an incredible, incredible story. Uh, maybe the, one of the greatest stories of all time if you grew up in the same era I did. And uh, this movie inspired all kinds of things. Puffy vests in my life. That's a part of my life now because of this movie. Um, I, I can't tell you how excited I got when I heard they had invented a hoverboard. I was pumped. The little, like, naive, like, young part of me was like, yes, it's about time. And then I saw someone riding one, and it had wheels. And I was like, well, that's cool, but that's not what I thought you meant. Because I saw Michael J. Fox in my head just flying through the future. Oh, man, then the self-lacing shoes. You guys researched this? Nike actually made these a couple years ago. And they, they actually gave them out as this part of, like, this lottery and so I thought I'd get online and see how much they cost. They cost $63,000 for one, just one pair. So my, my hopes were dashed. Now I'm just waiting. I'm banking on it. Like I'm reshaping my life to make sure one of my kids gets wealthy and can buy these for me eventually. Like I, self-lacing shoes, those are awesome. And how are you going to ride a hoverboard without self-lacing shoes? It just makes sense. So uh, anyways, I have no idea where that was going. That was fun though. Um, we're going to have a blast with this series. We're going to have a blast with this, this movie trilogy, and I think we're going to learn a lot about ourselves and hopefully learn a lot about God and how he views us. Uh, we have to start kind of with the basic premise. There's, there's this main character named Marty McFly in this series, and Marty McFly has a, a weird, odd doctor friend, Doc Brown, and uh, this guy's always getting Marty in trouble and helping him out of trouble, and so one time he finds himself transported back, in, back to the to past, into his life past, and he finds himself there and in the past, he's trying to, to figure out how to get back to the future, right? And, uh, you know, back to the future. It makes sense. He's trying to get back to the future. As he's trying to get back to the future, he actually makes a big mistake. He saves his dad from getting hit by a car. Now, his dad wasn't his dad at this point. He was just another dude in, the, in the high school. And when he saves his dad from getting hit by a car, his mom, who isn't his mom yet, all of a sudden develops a crush on him. And you can imagine the awkwardness and weirdness of your not-yet-mom having a crush on you that's going to be a problem. So then he tries to orchestrate this whole situation so that he can get his mom to have a crush on his real dad instead of having a crush on him. And it's a massive mess. And he's trying to basically take this one detail of his life and make sure this one detail of his life doesn't forever impact his future. And in this universe of the movie, that's exactly how it could happen. 
One false step, one near miss, one thing could just dramatically impact the future of not only his life, but in everybody's life involved. Only by going back and fixing this stuff can he have a future that he desires. And that's crazy. And actually, it leads me to tell you this. Did you guys know that I almost wasn't here today? If not for a couple key things happening in the right way or not happening, I wouldn't be here. My dad's dad, my grandpa, worked in a factory. And one time, something fell on his head, and he had a really bad head injury. Not what you're going for, right? Workman's comp type situation. He goes to the hospital and meets this fine young woman, right, who ends up nursing him back to health, and they fall in love. That's my grandma and grandpa. Now, he says that the head injury impacted his (laughs) decision-making. Grandma would tell the story a little differently and say, you better be glad you had a head injury, right? Fast forward a little bit. My dad is dating my mom from a distance uh, over school and all this other stuff's going on. My dad's actually with a group of friends on an icy road, gets into a really bad, bad car accident. If not for a couple minor details in this car situation, my dad, as morbid as it is, could have lost his life in that car accident. Grandma and grandpa never meet because grandpa never has a head injury. Dad and mom don't start dating, but even once they're dating, maybe my dad doesn't make it through the car accident. I'm not here today. And so it's kind of weird to think about a bunch of random maybe occurrences leading up to the point where we are here this morning. And guess what, friends? Your story is the same as mine. If a couple things were tweaked, you wouldn't be here today. And yet here you are. Maybe against all odds, maybe against all probability, maybe it seems kind of random, but here you are. It makes you start to wonder, what else actually happened that I don't even know about? Like, what were the close calls in my life that I'm aware of? Like, you know, you make it to the meeting just in time, and you get that, that big raise your family really needed. Man, that was close. You meet someone, and it seems like this random meeting, like, I don't even know. Our paths just crossed. We bumped into each other, and then they mean so much to you. You make one small decision one night, and it ends up turning into the night that you will always remember for better and for worse. And those are just the ones you know about. What about the stuff you don't even know about? The near misses, the close calls, the encounters that you just, you don't know how close it was. And yet again, here you are today. And I just wonder, some of us, if we were given the opportunity that Marty McFly had to go back into the future or to go into our past to affect our future, how many of us would jump on a chance like that? Go back and just tweak one small thing. Just change one path that we took. Meet one person, not meet one person. But alas, we don't have a real DeLorean. If you do, talk to me afterwards. I would love to ride in it. And we don't have self-lacing shoes. I I don't. If you do, again, I don't care what size you wear. I'm going to try them on. And we don't have Doc Brown, and we don't have a time travel opportunity. We we can't do that. And so in this series, we're going to look at how God deals with people who have pasts that they maybe wish they could change. We're going to deal with this, this question of what do we do when we're when we're looking to go forward, but we can't go back. And when, in order to do this, we're going to look at a really short story. And it, this story features some people you may have heard of, you may not have. It's found in this book in the Old Testament called Ruth. And the story of Ruth is actually the story of every single person in this room. And you may not know that, but it's true. And in this time and place, we're going to start with some setting. Because we're going to talk about a time that was really different than ours. 
and yet in many ways really, really similar to ours. But to start, we're going to go back to Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to talk about uh, the setting, the beginning. It says, in those days when the judges ruled, which means basically our judiciary system of, of kind of fixing problems, making big decisions, uh, interacting and mediating between people, except no president, no Congress. Sometimes that sounds great. Right now, I just want you to know, though, that these people didn't have that. They just had judges, usually one judge and then judges underneath them, and they ruled everything. Other than that, you were kind of on your own. So the judges ruled, and there was a famine in the land. This is the Middle East. This is the area around the Mediterranean. And actually, the Bible tells us, and other outside scholars actually tell us, that famines were pretty common. Famines were caused by drought and weather. They were caused by pests like locusts. And uh, sometimes they were caused by enemies. They would come in and they would raid. They would either just destroy and burn crops or they would steal crops. And we don't really know why there was a famine. We just know there was a famine. Food's scarce. And so because of that, this man and his family from Bethlehem and Judea with his wife and two sons, they go to live for a while, just temporarily, in the country of Moab. Now, some of you love maps and some of you don't really care. It doesn't really make sense. But here's a map because I love maps. And in this map situation, I need you to know a couple things. First of all, this is where they're from, Bethlehem. And they travel this way to Moab. Eventually, we'll see, they they make the return trip. But right now, they just traveled from here to here. No food here, food here. But this is where the story kind of gets complicated. And I told you it's a little bit of a different day and age than ours. When God brought his people, his special chosen group of people that he was going to bless the entire world through, when he brought them to the place they were supposed to be, it was an actual place. He brought them to this place, and he said, this is your place. I've saved it for you. You're going to actually live here. Don't live anywhere else. Live here. And inside of each of these, in this area, each of you, each family, each group, each tribe will actually have a place within a place. And these people were very, very tied to their place within a place. Their entire religious system, their entire faith, their entire family life, their economy, everything was tied to this place. And when God said, stay here, what he was also saying is, don't go there. Don't go anywhere else. Don't go outside of these boundaries. These are your boundaries for a reason. Don't go out there. I want you here. So God's being very clear. Obedience to God in this situation is staying here. First complication. They went outside the boundaries. Second complication is this. When they go, the Bible actually tells us that when when the the father and the two sons and the mother leave and go, the two sons end up actually marrying women from this area called Moab. And this is another huge no-no for God's people. When they go to the place, they're supposed to stay in the place, they're supposed to marry in the place, live in the place, raise their family in the place. And God's very clear, listen, if you start to marry people outside of these people in this place, what's going to happen is this. Your heart's going to start to drift from loyalty to me to loyalty to other gods. And no matter what you say, no matter how much you believe that won't take place, it's going to happen, I promise. And so what happens is the people don't listen. And over and over again, the people drift, their hearts drift from God when they marry outside of this group of people. Again, different time, different place, different age, but those were the rules. That was how God expected his people to behave. There's a third complication in this story the Bible talks to us about. When these people go and they live in this place just for a little while, apparently they're there longer than they expected. Because in this time, the father passes away and both sons pass away. So the setting for us as we get ready to move forward in this story is that this family has moved outside of God's boundaries for them. The parents have allowed their sons to marry women they weren't supposed to marry. And then for whatever reason, we don't know why, we don't know how old they are, we don't know how it happened, all the men in the family have passed away. 
And this is kind of where we start. I know it's kind of a downer, but this is where we start. There's famine in the land. The family moves. The kids marry. A little while later, the mother, her name is Naomi. Naomi gets the news that I think she'd been waiting for for quite a while. She actually hears from, from a distance this stuff has taken place. So when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And, and I want you to focus in on, this is really specific, the writer doesn't let us believe that the famine just is fixed. The writer doesn't let us believe or understand that locusts just left, or the weather changed, or the enemy left. It's actually really clear from the author's perspective that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. God did that. And I want you to kind of file that away because we're going to come back to that. But that's really, really important to me. So good news, there's food back on the table, Naomi. You don't have to stay there any longer. So they're packing up. They're preparing to go home. As the ladies get ready to leave, as they set out for for their homeland, Scripture tells us that Naomi actually stops them. And she says, you know what, ladies? Actually, you should stay. This is your family. This is your people. This is where you were raised. You should actually stay here Settle down, start afresh, we've been through a lot, marry again, stay where you're comfortable, I'll go ahead. One of the daughters says, sure, I'm going to do that, she goes back. The other daughter, her name is Ruth, she says, no way. Her response is actually really powerful, and you may have heard it before, you may have heard this at a wedding, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go, and where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. On multiple levels, Ruth just said, listen, There's no chance I'm going back. I'm returning home with you to your home. Nothing's going to stop me. She continues, where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So Ruth, in this heroic, high-character sentiment, just basically says, listen, I'm not going back. I'm going with you. And it's at this moment that I want to avoid getting in trouble, but I kind of need to bring something to the forefront. About nine years ago, I stood eye to eye with the woman I loved deeply, and I committed my entire life to her. It sounded simpler, similar to this. For better or for worse, for richer or for, for poorer, sickness and health, till death do us part. And that was a big decision, right? I meant it with all of my heart, but that was a big decision. It's an entirely different decision to stand eyeball to eyeball to your mother-in-law right? And if she's in here today, don't look at her. I'm sorry. And to say for better and for worse, for richer and poorer till death to us, are you kidding me? And Sandy, if you're listening to this, I love you. You get what I'm saying though, right? That's kind of weird. And like I'm going to do, the ladies moved on quickly. And they find themselves on their journey back, just Ruth and Naomi this time. And it says in Scripture, as they near this town that, that, that would have been home for, for Naomi so long ago, the buzz about town is, could this actually be Naomi? Is this really her? Is she really coming home? And this is the first time we get insight into how Naomi's feeling. Like, we've just talked about all this stuff flatly, two-dimensionally. Like, this is, just, this is just facts. This happened to a woman sometime. No, this is a real person. And Naomi experienced all of this. 
And we don't know exactly how she felt about it until we get to this, but she had experienced a lot of change. And whether it was her decision to go or her decision for her kids to marry or how much say in the process she had, we don't know. But we know that from the time she left to the time she's going to return, her life is dramatically different. And so Naomi, in response to this question, could this be Naomi, says back some interesting words. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Don't call me that anymore. You should know Naomi actually is a word that means pleasant or happy. Hey, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me happy anymore. Call me Mara, a name meaning bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Don't call me happy. Don't call me pleasant. You don't know me anymore. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi, when you left, we were all hungry. What do you mean you left full? And, and Naomi, like, there's food on the table now. Like, don't, don't worry. Like, we have food. Did you hear? You don't have to be empty. We've got food on the table. If you can empathize with Naomi at all, you understand what she's saying. She's not talking about food. She said, yeah, everybody was hungry, but when I left, I had a family. I had a, I had a husband. I had two sons, which in this day and age, again, would have been the highest blessing you could have gotten. I had two sons, I had a husband, I had a future, I had some sort of standing, I had the ability to leave when I wanted to leave. I had plans in my brain, I, I was going to raise grandkids, I knew this plan. And yeah, there's food on the table right now, but I'm coming back to none of that. What am I going to eat, eat food and feel better? How's that going to help me with my family situation? And this is painful, don't call me pleasant or happy. She's lost everything. It gets a little more complicated than that because for Naomi, the way she was raised and what she was taught and how her people believed, when, when someone looked at their life and they saw how their life was going, they could actually reflect on how God felt about them. So when God gave her a husband and God gave her two sons, which meant all kinds of things culturally, like the fact that the, the land they had in their place on the map would be passed down to the family and the family name would be passed down and they would have an heir to their family. They would have land rights. They would have all kinds of blessing. They would have protection. When, when she had a husband and two sons, she knew God was blessing her. He was pleased with her. She, would, she was doing the right thing and he was happy. Does it feel like a coincidence to Naomi that after she disobeyed God and after she stepped outside of his will, she's coming back now a mess. God is, he's got to be disappointed with her, right? This has got to be hanging over Naomi's head like a ton of bricks. This is just not good. Not only is my life terrible, God has actually made it even worse. It's bitter now. That's the taste in my mouth because he's mad at me. Have you ever had thoughts like that? Like, God, I, you know my family needs this money. And I know I've screwed up, but if you could just come through for me anyways, please, I know I don't deserve this. God, we're praying for healing right now, and I just, in the back of my mind, I can't help but feel like maybe this is our fault. Did we do something wrong? You're not healing. Is it sin? Did we mess up? God, my kids are out of control. You see that, right? God, you've got to see they're not acting right. Is this some sort of weird karma or punishment? Like, am I getting my just desserts because I had a kid like me? God, it's kind of quiet. You're, you're playing kind of like distant God right now because you know I've messed. Where are you? I went away full and I came back empty. On top of that, Naomi's coming home with a daughter-in-law as, as basically all she's got. And the daughter-in-law, it's fine. She seems like a good lady, but this daughter-in-law is a constant reminder to Naomi of the fact that she doesn't have her family anymore. 
Also, as she walks into town, guess what people are thinking? I don't know her. Naomi, who are you bringing with you? Oh, just the product of my son's sins that I let them do. You can kind of think through with Naomi, and the Bible doesn't say all these things were going on, but I just kind of wonder, she's experiencing grief already. She lost her family. Maybe she feels embarrassed that she didn't raise perfect kids or even kids that obeyed God. Maybe she felt anxious about how her town would see her now. Maybe she felt the fear of an uncertain future. And maybe heaviest of all, she felt the disapproval and disappointment of her God. And I kind of imagine Naomi in in this situation feeling like, man, there was a tightrope and God was really, really clear. This was the line we were supposed to walk. And at a certain moment of our lives when we left for Moab and when my son's married, not only did we teeter, we actually fell off that tightrope. And now it's just, this is life, I'm done. And, And I need to be really, really clear at this point, like, God was clear, they weren't supposed to leave. And they weren't supposed to marry foreign people. That's just the way it was. That was the rule of of that day and age. And it really was outside of his will to do what they did. That's not really in question. Just like that's not really in question for my life. Have I done anything that dishonored God or disobeyed? Absolutely. Have I stepped outside of God's will in my life? Sure, haven't we all? And I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form for the rest of this message that God doesn't care about that or he actually encourages that or it's fine, don't worry about it. What I am saying is this, in this series, today specifically, I want to see if there's something we can learn from Naomi's story that would help us understand how God actually deals with people who have messed up, who have stepped outside of his will, who have fallen into things they know they shouldn't have fallen into, and what does he do with people who can't go back and fix it? What's that look like for us? In this moment where Naomi is coming back to face all of this bitterness, God does what he does so many times. He begins to work through this process to redeem and save and reshape. And he seems to love for some reason using scraps and messed up broken pieces of things to make something beautiful out of them. And so I'm not going to tell you the whole story because we have four more weeks to discover it, but I really just want to tell you... This story gets hopeful fast. And God uses Ruth, this daughter-in-law that shouldn't be, and God uses Naomi in the midst of their pain and sadness to actually rescue them and actually bless the entire world, every single person sitting here. And that might seem far-fetched, but it's true. And God uses these people to actually address a hunger way deeper than famine that we talk about here at Alive, spiritual hunger. Where we find the the beginning of this is actually in the fourth chapter of of Ruth. And in this fourth chapter, there's something that's kind of like a piece of the puzzle. And honestly, it kind of seems boring, but we'll get into that. Before we get into that, I just need to ask you a question. I want want this question to kind of rattle around your mind and heart a little bit as the series starts. And I want you to ask yourself, is that something I can believe? Is that something I can actually believe? So here's the question. Examine this if you can. Life is sometimes hard. But God is always good. Is that a question? No. But, but do you question it? Maybe. Can you wrestle with that a little bit? Life is sometimes hard. I have no problem believing that. Like I have a highlight reel in my mind of things that are hard. I try to figure out whose fault it was, what I could have done to fix it. Was that God that let it happen? Did God make that happen? Did I make it happen? Honestly, it doesn't really matter for me. It just hurts. Life is hard sometimes. The second part of that, though, it, 
God is always good. And by good, I don't mean, you know this, I don't mean that God is only going to allow good things to happen to you. And I don't mean that when you pray, God's going to do exactly what you ask him to do or tell him to do. And I don't mean life is going to be smooth. We're too smart for that. We know that's not the case. For me, what good means in this statement is that God is always up to something. And that something is always going to benefit us long term. That God's ultimate plan for all of us is always going to be better than what I see and what I hope for. That God's always at work, and if God's at work, then there's hope that no matter how hard life is, that God's good, and therefore things will turn around. That's what I want you to think about for a little bit. Life is legitimately hard, but God is always good, and he can make beautiful things out of a tough, tough life. I told you God would provide hope through Naomi and Ruth's life, and I don't want to tell you all the details, but basically what happens is that Ruth eventually finds a good, good man. A really good man. This guy's name is Boaz. And Boaz and Ruth end up getting married. And the Bible tells us how it works. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Longer story there. We'll get to it next week or the week after. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Did you see how that happened? Not so much biologically. That we're not going to cover today. But the writer again is really specific. He sets this up for her. Look at this. The Lord enabled her to conceive. Keep in mind, Ruth hadn't had a child up until this point. She was married to Naomi's husband, but there were no children that we know of. And at this point in time, God gets really specific and enables her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. That's important. And again, we're not going to get into biology or all the implications or what that might mean for you necessarily, but here's what I want you to understand from the writer's perspective. He's now attributed two incredible things to God. Saving a nation from famine by specifically providing food for them and then allowing Ruth to have a son with Boaz. And that's so important because in this time frame, the writer also tells us that Naomi has only attributed bad and difficult things to God. Life is hard, life is bitter because God's hand has handed me that kind of situation. And I get that. Because that's how I see see things sometimes, and maybe you've been there. The writer's painting God as working in the midst of and around and behind the scenes to rescue and save. And the whole time, Naomi's perspective is that God is mad and disappointed. And as we get into the fourth chapter of Ruth's story, there's this incredible, incredible nugget of hope hidden in a really strange list of names. And so we fast forward a little bit into this strange list of names, and I just want to give you like a little preview as to why we don't normally read genealogies. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. Praise the Lord. Abinadab, the father of Nashon. I can't even say that. Nashon, the father of Salmon. There we go. That's a cool name. Salmon. Listen to this. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Salmon's the father of Boaz. Boaz with Ruth the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. That David. You know, shepherd boy, David. Musician, David. King, David, right? Three generations after Ruth, four after Naomi, her great-grandson, David was born. Before David became king, he used five small stones to slay a giant who was threatening the people of God, and he saved them. God, through David's courage, saved the people of God from a giant. 
And that happened because of Naomi and Ruth. But that really happened because of God. You want to know something a lot better than that? Like a thousand, a million times better than that. Like that's a cool story. It's kind of a cool twist. A million times better than that. And the writer of Ruth, I don't even think would have known about this. And you get to know it today. 28 generations after Ruth, 25 generations after David, Jesus Christ was born into that same family, that same line. After so many years, God would provide an even greater rescue. He would destroy the biggest giants we've ever known, sin and death through Jesus Christ, through his life and his death and his resurrection. And today, we're all sitting here, as random as it seems, because of that time and that place and that victory. And that somehow, because of God's incredible wisdom and sovereignty and love and mercy, that story that we're celebrating, what a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. We're celebrating that today because God allowed his line and his plan to weave itself through imperfect people who were messed up and made mistakes and had regrets and had shame, and Naomi had no idea that ever could have happened. How would she have ever seen that coming? Who did see it coming? Well, God did. And it makes me wonder today, if that's how God responds, and if that's how God approaches situations, if that's how God deals with messed up people, broken people, sad people, then what if one of the things God was trying to tell Naomi is, hey, I'm not against you. I'm actually for you. What if God was trying to ask Naomi, hey, what if your present circumstances, the ones you see right in front of your face, actually pale in comparison to my big plan for you? And maybe, and I don't know if this, this works for you, but in my brain I've been thinking a lot recently, what if, what if this story shows us a different picture than the tightrope that we talked about for God's will? Like maybe instead of a tightrope that we're constantly trying to balance and not fall off of, what if it's actually more like a highway? Just picture in your brain a highway, and God's taking us somewhere. He's taking you somewhere, and he's taking me and you somewhere together, and he's taking all of us together, and he's got an incredible plan, and the best way to go is so obvious. There's signs everywhere. Just go this way. But every good highway has off-ramps, right? And so every good highway has these opportunities, and maybe they're the wrong way to go, and we shouldn't go that way, but guess what? We can. And if we go that way, we're not going this way anymore. We're actually potentially going to get lost. And we felt that feeling before. We went too far. Maybe along the way, you actually try to find coffee and it's terrible. And not only are you losing time now, but you found terrible coffee. And you try to find a bathroom and there are terrible bathrooms, awful bathrooms you have to get a key for. And the key has a two by four attached to it. And you're dragging that in front of everybody. And everyone knows you're going to the bathroom. And the person that drug it to you, you're scared to follow them in. Right? Things get messy when you leave this highway, right? It's real. It's not best. It's not good. God doesn't want that for you. It's painful. It's hard. There are regrets. There is shame. There's nothing good out there. But man, you can go there, right? And we don't have any problem imagining that. And life gets hard when you go there. And if every good highway has off-ramps, you know what else it has? It has on-ramps. And so in this story, you can see where these off-ramps are obvious. The on-ramps are just as obvious. Oh, my goodness, there God is saying, hey, I see you over there. I don't want you over there. You don't want to be over there. Come on. 
What if God so desperately wants us even more than we want to be on the right path that he will actually create these opportunities for us and invite us urgently in and say, listen, come back, come back, come back. Is there a bigger, more glaringly obvious sign of an on-ramp than Jesus Christ himself? Through the line of Naomi, through the line of Ruth, through a bunch of pain and regret, coming himself, stepping into the mess we made and saying, hey, come all you who are weary. I will give you rest. And so God, is in, in, in his incredible plan, offers us a chance to come back in. And let me ask you this. If God would risk his incredible plan, the greatest rescue ever attempted and succeeded, this beautiful name, this incredible, incredible plan of Jesus himself coming to earth, if he would risk all of that on a messed up person who stepped out of God's will like Naomi, What makes you think he can't take your life and make something of it? What makes you think he can't take all the souvenirs and all the stuff you regret from being off that highway for so long and somehow make all those scraps make sense? What makes us doubt that God is is actually happy to see us and not upset at us sometimes? What if Naomi's story is actually showing us that we have an incredibly good, good God that's inviting us back into his plan. And then he can do something incredible through us and with us. And then he just wants to know us. Naomi, I think, struggled to believe that. I think that's why she said, don't call me good. Don't call me pleasant. Don't throw that in my face. I think Ruth might have struggled to believe that too as she's going through all of the labor that you're going to find out about. I think David struggled with that. Man, David had some hard times. You know, I think Jesus even might have struggled with this. There's this moment in Jesus' life where he says, hey, God, are we sure this is the only way? If there's any other way, this is hard. But ultimately, his life is a testament, and even his death and the way he died was a testament. God, you have a plan. I'm sticking to it. And for me personally, and for you, I'm so glad this story is available to us. As I read about these people, and as I understand that these aren't just random characters, these are real people. I start to see in their story an opportunity for me to identify with them and say, listen, if God can do it through them, if God's patient with them, if he's merciful with them, if he's interested in them, then maybe God can give me a shot too. Maybe he can bring me back into this. Not on my track record, not not because of my merit, not because I'm good, but because of his grace and redemption and patience. The challenge for us today, the challenge for me, the challenge for you is that statement I asked you to think about. What do you do with that? Life is hard sometimes. Is God good? Is he always up to something? Is he able to take all this mess and put it into to something useful? Is he still interested in you? And if that's true, then that means that we have some implications for our lives. That means nobody here and nobody you know is too far gone. Nobody is so far off that the GPS stopped working. He's still after you. Nobody's plan is so off track that God can't bring something good out of it. But it strikes me as I thought about this more and more this week, you can tell a lot about somebody by their posture. And I think you can tell a lot about my life and my relationship with God by where I, what I'm doing with my hands. And so I'm, I'm going to ask, ask you to do something a little bit different in a, in a few minutes, but I just want to talk through it real quick. You know, I think God maybe challenging us as a, as a people before we start this series, as we step into it, to trust him at a deeper level than we ever have before. 
And so for me, one of the signs of trust in my life is when I'm open-handed and I say, yeah, here you go, God. The problem for me is that when I go to be open-handed with God and I go to say, hey, here you go, God, sometimes that means I have to take my hands out from behind my back. Because sometimes I have stuff that I'm not proud of, stuff that I'm scared to show anybody, including God. And in order for me to be open-handed, I actually have to to pull my hands out from behind my back and say, here, God. And the good news is he already knows. (laughs) I feel like a little kid sometimes, like I'm hiding like this. God already knows what's in my hands behind my back. He's not going to be shocked by it. You think you invented something new? He's seen everything. But for us, sometimes to do this, we've got to pull our hands out from behind our back and say, here you go, God. For some of us, we're we're actually holding on to something so tight, so white-knuckled, we don't want to let go because we know God's asking for it. But we don't want to let go because we want it. And I just want to tell you, whatever you got in your hands, God's got something better for you, I promise. I promise you. Nothing you're holding on to is better than what God wants to give you. So maybe God's calling you to let go of it. For some of us, and, and this is what it means for me, when I have my hands like this, what I'm trying to do is protect myself. Maybe I'm scared or insecure. Maybe I'm trying to to comfort myself. Maybe I'm just afraid. For some of us, we don't trust God that he's going to protect us and take care of us because we're not sure he always has. And the challenge for some of us is actually to drop our our defenses and actually say, okay, God, I'm vulnerable here. This is scary for me, but here you go. Still others of us, maybe we don't do it with our posture. Maybe we would never think about it this way, but we're actually standing and walking and living like this, completely ashamed, if people would find out, if people knew, if I can't even look people in the eye. I can't even look God in the eye. And for some of us, we, our challenge is to drop that hand and actually look God in the face. Say, God, here I am. Here I am. You can use me. You can, you can have me. I want to know you deeper. And I think Naomi's story, as we start this series, tells us what God does with people who have messed up, who have regrets, who are scared, who want to self-protect, who are ashamed, who are hiding things. There he is in a moment, redeeming and loving and showing grace. And it's hard, it really is. But I want to challenge you as we pray to think about what your posture might be. Maybe I didn't nail it. Maybe I didn't include you in the list. You've got your own that God's dealing with you on. But I want to challenge you, whether it's in your mind or whether it's physically just with your hands, I want to challenge you as I pray to really allow God into that situation. And as we start this process, understand it's bigger than today. What does God want to do in your life through this series? What is God trying to talk to you about? Would you pray with me? Father, here we are. You see us. And God, I know in a room like this, there are so many stories represented. And the details of those stories are so complicated, and yet, God, it's not random that we're here today. And God, you know, you see all the highlights that we would write about and show off, and you see all the lowlights we hope no one ever knows about. You see every single detail. And God, as we attempt to move forward, God, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would be ministering to our hearts in a way that only you can. Would you give us the courage to open our hands? Would you give us the courage to trust you at a deeper level? Would you give us the ability to see past how we perceive you to to who you really are, who you're trying to show us you are in our lives? God, for some of us, we feel like, like Naomi, we just feel like our life is bitter. 
And yet, God, you show us that you bring the sweetest name of all time, Jesus, through a bitter life. And so, God, help us to trust that you can make something out of a a tough circumstance. God, for some of us, our families need to turn around. Our trajectory seems like it's concrete and it's never changing, and yet we hope it does. God, some of us need your rescue in our families. We don't want another generation like we've experienced before. We need you to rescue us, God, to change our direction. God, for some of us, we need a, a complete freedom from addiction that we've never known. And we don't know how it's going to happen. We need a miracle. God, whatever it is, I ask that you would show up in a very real way in us. Allow us to know you again and anew. Allow us to trust you with everything. Our hands are open to you, God. We love you and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.